Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Andrea Wolfe. On the first Romantics, in her new book, Magnificent Rebels. Andrea Wolfe is the award-winning author of five books. Her previous book, The Invention of Nature, was an international bestseller and won more than 10 awards, including the Royal Society Science Book Award, Costa Biography Award, and the LA Times Book Prize. Andrea has written for many newspapers, including The Guardian, LA Times and New York Times. And she was the Eccles British Library Writer in Residence in 2013 and a three-time fellow of the International Centre for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. And today we're going to be talking about Andrea's latest book, which is Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. Andrea, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So this book starts off with a little personal story. So tell us why. Well, I suppose at the centre of this book is really the tension between the breathtaking possibilities of the free will and the pitfalls of selfishness. And it's a balancing act, I believe, that uh, continues today. So I thought I'd begin the book with my own balancing act, since I had a good share of balancing in my life, to explain a little bit why I think that this is important. And, you know, that this is an important aspect of our life today, because this is, you know, this is what for me this book is about, is how can we be a person who lives a meaningful life in which we pursue our dreams and at the same time be a morally good person? So how can we reconcile our personal liberty with the demands of a society? And really, that is like my personal story, really, how I got into this book I suppose because I've I think I was I was quite a selfish person when I was younger and um, so I start talking in the book about how I lived a life of well let's say kind of obnoxious self-confident of adolescence and then I had a daughter when I was quite young and uh, I continue to live a life where I made a lot of impulsive choices including packing up from Germany and moving to England when my daughter was still very young and kind of arriving here with a half-finished education and a trunk full of books and uh, never 
ending supply of self-confidence. And then how basically my daughter, as she grew up, and I, as I became an adult and grew up with her, grounded me to, you know, and anchored this determination to be free into something bigger, which was to be a good person. So I, I thought it was a good beginning into a story of a group of people who really put the self at center stage of their thinking and who gave us free will and self-determination. So this group of people, which is what the book is about, uh, what you call the Genocet, tell us when you, I mean, some of these people are, you know, very familiar figures. Some of them aren't. But as a grouping, tell us when you first discovered these people and thought that this was a good story. I almost fell into this story when I was doing the research for my previous book about Alexander von Humboldt. And Humboldt um, had spent many, many months in Jena in the late 1790s um, because his brother lived there. And as I was doing the research in Jena, I walked through the streets and I saw all the name plaques on the houses of all the people who had lived there. <laughs> I couldn't quite believe my eyes because this was like the who is who of German thinkers and philosophers. And some of these names might not be very familiar to the English-speaking audience, but in Germany, they are the literary superstars. And maybe I should just kind of talk about actually who was there. So there was um, Goethe's most celebrated poet, Goethe. There was the playwright Friedrich Schiller, who had become famous through his um, revolutionary play, The Robbers. There was the young poet Novalis, who played with Death and Darkness, and who some might know from Penelope Fitzgerald's beautiful novel, uh, The Blue Flower. There were the philosophers um, Fichte, Schelling and Hegel, the brilliant Schlegel brothers, Friedrich and August Wilhelm, who were writers and literary critics. There was Alexander von Humboldt. There was his brother, the older one, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who would later found the university in Berlin. And there were a bunch of pretty extraordinary women. And I hope we talk a little bit more in detail about them. So all of these intellects, great intellects, live a life worth telling. But what is more extraordinary than the individual stories is actually that they came together at exactly the same time in this tiny little town of Jena, which is back then had only four and a half thousand inhabitants and it took less than 10 minutes to cross. So I wanted to find out why. Why did they all come together there? It's a bit like the Bloomsbury set, I suppose, or that the modernists in Paris. So there are these moments in history when a cluster of extraordinary people comes together. So what I found was this amazing story about radical ideas, um, ideas about the creative power of the self, about the unity between us and nature, and about the real meaning of freedom. But also a story that reads a bit like a soap opera, because there are lots of scandals and love affairs and um, children born out of wedlock. So. It was a brilliant, brilliant group of people who placed the self at the center stage of their thinking. And through that changed the way we think about us, the world and nature. So the French revolutionaries changed the political landscape at that time of Europe. But the Jena set really incited a revolution of the mind, which I believe we can still very much feel today. So I write history books because I'm interested in finding out why we are we are. So I don't think their history is a kind of pile of old and dusty ideas. So in my previous book about Alexander von Humboldt, I looked at the relationship between humankind and nature to find out why we had destroyed so much of our beautiful planet. But I also realized that we have to look at us as individuals because we are such a society obsessed with the self. I mean, there's a whole generation called the me generation. So 
I wanted to ask questions such as why are we such a selfish species? Uh, when did we first expect to determine our own lives? When did we first ask how to be free? And the answers to these questions I found in Jena. What was special about Jena at that time when this group all converged and met there? Because it's a very small, seemingly insignificant university town, um, barely any bigger than the university at the time. It was, you know, literally a university town. And so what was the significance of this place and why there? So let me start with why Germany? Because Germany at the end of the 18th century was not a unified nation. It was a patchwork of 1500 states ranging from tiny principalities to powerful states such as Prussia and Austria. And and one unintended advantage of this fragmentation was that censorship was really difficult to be enforced in these states because every single state had like a different set of rules. So it was much harder in Germany to enforce censorship than, say, in centrally ruled nations such as England or, or France. Also, unlike France and Spain and England, who were big, powerful monarchies with a global reach through their colonies, in Germany, everything was kind of inward looking and splintered. So the German imagination was really fed by books. And Germans were fanatical readers. The German book market was four to five times bigger, for example, than the English book market. It was called the age of paper in Germany. Literacy rates soared uh, with Saxony and Prussia actually leading the world at the end of the end of the 18th century. So it was a time when ideas and arguments traveled pretty easily through Germany, more easily than in, than in other nations. So then the question is, why Jena? Because Jena really becomes the crucible of the modern self. And it was, as you said, it was a tiny little town, 4,500 inhabitants, of which almost 900 were students. So it was very much a town that was dominated by its university. And there was no other place in Germany that attracted so many open and liberally minded um, people. And the reason was, as one professor said, that we have more complete freedom here to think and to teach and to write. So Jena attracted thinkers and writers who had been in trouble with the authorities in their home state. So Friedrich Schiller, for example, had been imprisoned after his play, The Robbers. So he came to Jena because he got a job there at the university. And the, it helped that the ruler... Uh, the Duke, Karl August, that he was an enlightened ruler who encouraged a certain openness and freedom. But the real reason was really the university or the governors of the university, which had once belonged to Saxony, but which through complicated inheritance laws uh, was now, or back then, nominally controlled by four different Saxon dukes with no one really in charge at all. So the result was that professors could really teach pretty much exactly what they wanted. And that's what they did. And it became a very transient place where people kind of came and, and left and um, were not really punished for and not really censored for what they were saying. So you mentioned, obviously, that the, the French Revolution has very recently happened and is obviously a, a large catalyst into changing the thinking of, of, of a lot of these people that we're going to be talking about. And as you said, the ideas here are centred on the ideas of, of the self. So just for context, let's talk about how would the average person just previous to this 
have seen themselves in relation to the state, in relation to God, etc. How did a person conceptualize their self before this? It was a very, very different world, obviously, to ours today. Um, it was a world where, you know, most of Europe was still held in the iron fist of absolutism, where monarchs could rule, but pretty much all the you know details in their lives of their of their subjects. So down to details such as they could in many states decide um, about the profession of their subjects, about they could refuse permission to get married, they could sell their subjects as mercenaries to other nations. There was um, parts of Europe, there was still a feudal system, so systems which bound people to lands and lords like slaves. It was very much a world that was dominated by despotism, inequality, and control. And then, as you said, the French Revolution happens. And it's an event that is so dramatic that hardly anyone in Europe is unaffected by this. Because what happens there is the French, when the French revolutionaries declare that all men are equal, they promise a social order that is based on the power of ideas. So philosophy, I think, in that moment, leaves the ivory tower of rarefied thought and arrives in the minds of ordinary people. So it is a, the, the French Revolution really proves that words and ideas are stronger than weapons and kings and queens. So it's, it's the moment where philosophy where, or where writers really see that they have a powerful weapon in their hand with their quills. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Andrea Wolfe, and we're talking about her new book, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics, and The Invention of the Self. And Andrea, I want to, in the second half, now look at more closely at some of those personalities of the Yena set. And, and as you've mentioned, there's Goethe and Schiller, and these are possibly the, you know, the two most famous names that were involved, but they're very much like older more like mentor figures to this younger generation who are the ones I'd like to talk about. And so first of all, yeah, let's talk about Caroline. Caroline, Michael, Les, Burma, Shagel, Shelley. <laughs> um, I think I've got all of those. Um, tell us who she was. She is an amazing figure. Yeah, so Caroline, Michaelis, Böhme, Schlegel, Schelling carries the name of her husbands, of her three husbands and her father, but she refuses to be restricted by the role that society intended for women at that time. So she was, and she very much stands at the heart of this story. She's an incredible woman. She was born in 1763. She was the daughter of a celebrated scholar in Germany, and she was really raised in a household of politics, literature, and poetry. And she was beautiful, and she was educated, and she was witty, and she was fiercely independently minded. And she married young. She was widowed at the age of 24. She then hangs out with German revolutionaries, only to find herself imprisoned by the Prussians for being a sympathizer with the French Revolution. And not only that, in prison, she discovers that she is pregnant after a one-night stand with an 18-year-old French soldier. So quite something for, uh, you know, for at, at a time when just being alone in a room with a man was seen as being um, scandalous. After her imprisonment, she kind of zigzags through Germany, um, she, but she's refused to be deterred what she calls like one little foolishness, which would have meant nothing had she been a man. And then the young writer August Wilhelm Schlegel arrives and marries her and gives her a new name and with that a new beginning and takes her to Jena in 1796, where she becomes the heart of the Jena set. So she creates the physical space where they meet and work and laugh, but she's much, much more than just a muse. I think she's, you know, if, if they were an orchestra, she would be the conductor who brought the score alive. She very much directs and steers their interests and their discussions. She becomes the editor of their literary magazine, for example. She writes reviews under her husband's name. And together with her husband, she translates Shakespeare plays. It's the first German verse translation of Shakespeare. And it's to this day, the standard edition in Germany and makes Shakespeare hugely popular. So they translate 16 plays. And not only that, August Wilhelm's lectures, published lectures on Shakespeare, which are very much informed by his discussion with Carolina, really resurrect Shakespeare in England. So William Wordsworth, for example, says that it was a German critic who taught us correctly to think about Shakespeare. And an American critic says that August Wilhelm Schlegel was the discoverer of Shakespeare, because no one at that time knew about Carolina's involvement. She and August Wilhelm come to an unusual agreement of an open marriage. And they have this quite, you know, open house in Jena, where August Wilhelm's younger brother Friedrich lives with his lover, the divorced writer Dorothea Veit. And it's uh, it's almost like the first commune in Germany. And Caroline is very much the the heart of the Jena set. And in the in the end she kind of falls she then falls in love with with the, the young philosopher Friedrich Schelling and she eventually leaves with him. But 
for a few years when they're all in Jena, she is really the center of everything. And she's she's incredibly smart. I mean, she has a very deep, profound understanding of literature and poetry, which they all pretty much rely on. So Johan Fichter, who is the philosopher, who is very much the instigator of this mm. concentration on the idea of the self or the idea as it is in Germany of the ish. Um, so tell us something about who he was. So like Carolini, he's quite a character. Um, he's, he was, so he was the professor of philosophy in Jena. He arrived in 1794. He dressed, um, he gave his lectures dressed in riding boots with spurs and whip in hand. Uh, he was very muscular and kind of sturdily built, a bit more like a bull than a racehorse. And he was feared for his volatile temperament. So there was nothing gentle about him. He thundered rather than talked. He stomped rather than walked. He ate his snuff tobacco rather than inhaling it. And he shouted this new philosophy of the self literally from his lectern. And his students called him the Bonaparte of philosophy. And he was so popular that his lectures were packed. They were standing on ladders outside to look through the windows. And what he said is, or what he did is he imbued the self with free will and self-determination. And he said, there are no God-given or absolute truth. The only certainty he said there was, was that the world was experienced by the self. Now, that might not sound very extraordinary to us today, because we're so used to understanding the world through the prison of our mind and of of ourself. But at that time, it was a very radical idea. So philosophers for centuries had argued that the world was controlled by a divine hand. Mathematics, rational observations had kind of paved the way to knowledge. So we could understand, say, for example, natural laws, but we couldn't shape them. So humans remained these cogs in this seemingly divinely ordained machine. So they were certainly not free. So when Fichte said, the source of all reality is the self, it was an explosive idea because he declared the self as the supreme ruler of the world. He said, the self posits itself. And that basically means the self brings itself into existence. And not only that, through this powerful initial act, it also brings the external world into existence. And what this meant was that for Fichte, the self, because it posits itself, is essentially free, because it's the agent of everything. It's, you know, everything that might constrain or limit its freedom is in fact brought into existence by the self. So this is the moment when it becomes clear that the self rules the world, not God or kings and queens. And this is really the beginning of the modern self. And you mentioned him earlier, but can we talk a little bit more about who the poet Novalis was? Because he's not somebody I was familiar with before I read the book. So Novalis comes from an ancient Saxon um, aristocratic family. And uh, he studied in Jena and then in Leipzig and he befriends Friedrich Schlegel. And he He's actually not one who lives in Jena during that time, but he lives very nearby and he comes all the time to Jena. So that's why I counted him also as the, as the Jena said. And he's tall, lean, has a kind of delicate face, and everybody says there's something magical about him. Um, very intense and hypnotic, and men and women fall for him. And he embarks on this very intense study of Fichte's philosophy of the Ich, of the self, in the winter of 1795 and 96. And he fills 500 pages with his notes. And he 
also at that time falls in love with a 12-year-old girl, um, Sophie von Kuhn, which might, makes for slightly uncomfortable reading now, but so he falls for her, they get become engaged, but then she dies when she's 15, so when she's very young, and he falls into this kind of darkness. And he gives the philosophy of the self a kind of very idiosyncratic twist because he he wants to be reunited with Sophie. And so he wants to kill himself, but he doesn't want to like put a gun on his face. He wants to use his willpower. So this super strong self that Fichte kind of basically put at the center of his philosophy. Novalis takes that and says, well, if it's so strong, if it is so strong that it can, you know, create our knowledge of the external world, then it should be also so strong that it can kill myself. Obviously, um, unsurprisingly, that doesn't work, but he turns his grief into the most exquisite poetry. So Hymns of Hymns to the Night, which is a collection of six poems, is such a beautiful um, celebration of darkness and um, and death, which is something very new at that time, because until then, darkness was always seen as something quite negative. But he saw it as something that kind of let him transcend his body and his, the boundaries between his body and his mind. And when we look at Novalis, it really is, he's the one, I mean, he dies when he's very young and he becomes frozen in time and death, the epitome of the young romantic. But he's he's also the one who most, I would say, almost most evocatively turns against the, the Enlightenment um, because he says that, or he turns against this kind of increasingly rationalized world. And he fears that nature has been reduced to this kind of what he calls like monotonous machine. And that the, there's a kind of sense of disenchantment with the world and the increasing materialism of the modern world. And he says the sciences must all be poeticized. And you have Friedrich Schlegel agreeing with him, saying that he would like to make Euclid singable. So they're, they're really playing with transcending boundaries and also different disciplines. So when they say they want to romanticize the world, what they actually mean is that they want to transcend the boundaries, the disciplines. They want to unite humankind and nature. They want to unite the arts and the sciences, for example. And they were actually, we haven't mentioned this, they were actually the first to use the word romantic in its new literary Meaning. So the, the day the English speaking world obviously celebrates the Yenasset's contemporaries, such as Samuel Taylor, Coleridge, William Wordsworth, and the younger generation, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and John Keats as the great romantic poets. But the Yenasset are actually the first romantics. They're the true first romantics who launched romanticism as an international movement giving not only its name and purpose, but also its intellectual framework. Well, that was going to be my next question. How does the Yena group directly influence the, you know, seemingly more famous British romantic movement, but also the American transcendentalist movement a bit later on? So maybe we should we should then talk briefly about Friedrich Schelling, uh, because his philosophy is so important for the English romantics and for the American transcendentalists. Schelling arrives in Jena in 1798. At the age of 23, he becomes the youngest philosophy professor at the university, or the youngest professor at the University of Jena. He says there's a secret bond connecting our mind with nature. So instead of dividing the world into mind and matter, as philosophers had done for centuries, he insisted that everything was one. He said that our self and nature, that we are identical 
with nature. The, he says the living and the non-living world are ruled by the same underlying principles, connecting everything from frogs to trees, from stones to insects, from humans to, to rivers. And what that also means for him is that being in nature, say walking through a forest, for example, was therefore always also self-discovery because we are part of nature. And this idea becomes incredibly important for the English Romantics, for example. So Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he is so enthralled by the ideas that are coming out of Jena that he travels to Germany in 1798 with the intention of meeting his heroes in Jena and also learning German. And annoyingly, he runs out of money, so he never makes it to Jena, but he learns German. And when he returns to England, he returns with a trunk full of philosophy books. And he is obsessed with their ideas. So he reads Fichte's Ich Philosophy. He is very deeply, deeply impressed by Schelling's philosophy of unity, because Schelling's philosophy is really a philosophy of oneness, because we are the same as nature. And that becomes so important for Coleridge that he translates whole pages from Schelling's works and then just passes them on as his own work. So when he publishes his literary autobiography, Biographia Literaria, a friend accused Coleridge of barefaced plagiarism. And similarly, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the great American transcendentalist thinkers, he is deeply influenced by Schelling's philosophy. He owns lots and lots of books by the Jena set. And he also says that this idea of the unity of us and nature becomes very important. So he says, we are nature, or as Henry David Thoreau puts it, am I not partly leaves and vegetable mold myself? All of them are inspired by the Yina set. So we might have forgotten about them today, but their ideas kind of rippled out from this little town into the wider world. Just one more thing before we finish. So Yena today, what's it like? What sort of remains of this legacy, if anything? Now, that's an interesting question. So, yeah, I mean, the town itself was pretty much destroyed in World War II. So we don't see much of the old Jena anymore, except of the there's a bit of the town wall, the ancient town walls and the old marketplace. It's a very bustling and thriving university town at the moment um, right now. So it's um it still has a lot of it still has a lot of students there if we talk about what has remained of what the yena set has thought and written about i think it's almost impossible to imagine our lives without the foundation of their groundbreaking idea so they gave us a self-determined ich and free will and i think we are still very much empowered by their daring leap into the self because the self has stayed at center stage for better or for worse. And we still do this balancing act, which I mentioned at the beginning, between free will and selfishness. And I think underpinning are these questions, you know, who am I as, as an individual? Who am I as a member of a society? And But the interesting thing is actually that Fichte never intended his ideas to be a celebration of, a narcissistic celebration of the self. And although we are selfish today, he always insisted that freedom comes with our moral obligations. So freedom gives us the choice how to act and how to behave. And today we, we might think that we are free to think 
what we want and shape our opinions. But I do think, you know, right now it's very important to go back to the origins of this free self because we are, you know, our democracies are very much hollowed out by despots and liars and by reactionary politicians. So I think in that sense, it is a, what the Yena set has done and thought about remains very, very topical today. So I've been talking to Andrea Wolf. We've been talking about her new book, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self, which is out in the UK from John Murray Press. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you. That was fun. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.